You're listening to The Spirit Hunters, a member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Find out about our pod brethren and how to join our now public and free Discord group and support the show at podcast.hyperx.com and patreon.com slash spirithunterpod. Introducing the new HyperX Cloud Stinger 2. The Stinger 2 is a refined evolution of the classic Cloud Stinger and keeps the fan favorite 90 degree rotating ear cups, comfortable memory foam cushions, and the swivel to mute microphone. It also features two years of DTS Headphone X activation for upgraded sound localization, all while keeping the great price of the original Stinger. That's right, get the new Cloud Stinger 2 for only 50 bucks. Now isn't that nice? Available online at Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, and of course, HyperX.com. Sarah, Hannah, Joe, and Megan. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. The spirit it's fine. hunters. It's fine. <laughs> All right. And last time we watched as Morel and Leol duke it out. Um, palms sneak around and get spooked. And old friends reunite as new ones tagged along. We also covered the new Yu Hakusho live action series um, from the main cast to the showrunners to the production studio and more. Um, this week, we're watching episodes where we watch Kamugi in The King Bond and also the extraction team begin their infiltration plan. You better get ready. So we're going to talk about episode 108, Gungi of Kamugi, or in Japanese... Komugi no Gungi. Um, it originally was released in Japan on December 11th, 2013, and the equivalent manga chapters are 255 through 258, which were released in Japan on October 17th, 2005. So, uh, just a quick synopsis, and I say quick, but this one's a bit long, but... While the Assassination Task Force lays out their League of Legends-style backdooring strategy, Poof grows wary and wary of the further tactical... Dis- you know, I think those are pronounced differently. Uh, weary and wary. Yeah, well, let me start that again. Uh, while the Assassination Task Force lays out their League of Legends-style backdooring strategy, Poof grows weary and wary of the further tactical discussions between the King and Komugi. Though Poof's bloodlust almost rises to the surface, he ultimately elects to spare Komugi because to have let her die undefeated would have deified her in the eyes of the king. Within the Ikor-like gloom of the vacant palace, the recently recovered Marowim and Komugi play endless rounds, and like sparks rung by forging iron and darkness, Komugi begins to cast, no, emit a faint but powerful glow, Nen. Komugi leaves the king, uh, Komugi leaves and the king asks her name. After telling him, she requests his leaving him speechless. Komugi retires to another room not to rest, but to record the endless cascade of plays now sounding forth in her mind. The king contemplates the incredible rarity and impossible profound beauty of Komugi's ability and asks Pitu uh, what would have happened had Komugi gone through the selection as a natural Nen user. Uh, Pito informs the king she would have died, and the king pensively contemplates the worth of ability and beings defined by and outside of strength and power. Could this be the beginning of something new? Psych. 
He comes back to thinking only of survival of the fittest and goes back to her room ready to kill her and show the ultimate right of might. In the dramatic turn of events, though, the king finds Komugi at the mercy of a bird of prey that he instantly eliminates. The king is shocked not only by his actions, but by the automatic and involuntary desire to care for and protect this insect-like child by this man-like bug. Wow. <sighs> this episode. <laughs> I agree. I like the last sentence. It's like, yeah. reminds me of a YA novel or something. Oh, I know. <laughs> Just read like the synopsis of a YA. Like, give me a summary real quick. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, I just pic- no, I just pictured my mind went dark in a weird place because I know this exists. Like Kamugi X um whatever his that's the king's name again, I can never remember. I feel king. like it's a very popular ship. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean it's like a ship we basically get, okay? Yeah. It's <laughs> we basically canon. get this one. It is so, canon. So oh, it's the worst kind of canon. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I love it though. And like, like there's actually some um historical literary parallels we'll talk oh, about no. next time. It's like enemies to lovers. What is this called? What would this be called? It's like a uh, it's called Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, Beauty, Beauty and the Beast. Beast. Yeah, they're yeah. not really enemies. Hannah's like, like, no, there's a, cinnamon, there's a genre. It's a seminal and the like intense, no feeling dude. It's a very common dynamic. Okay. So. Yeah, oh, that um, is true. I also think another name for it is Tale as Old as Time. <laughs> yeah. oh, That's true. Rest in peace, Angela Lansbury. Wait, was that? Oh, oh, she's yeah. the teacup. She's yeah. a teacup. Yeah, teapot, teapot. No, no, Celine Dion and like the version we probably heard growing up for karaoke, but like the the theatrical like. <laughs> yeah, because like as you said it, I was like, "There's no way she was Belle," and I'm like, "That's not what you meant." <laughs> There's no way. Could you imagine? <laughs> I actually kind of love Miscast. it. Miscast. I like that too. Oh man, age them up like forty years and call it a day. Would make more sense, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah what do you guys think of the episode generally i really this, liked it yeah um, how what how do you uh like what was some key moments that like was that really stuck out to you i think definitely the later half especially with the king kind of going through his basically the beginning of his moral existential crisis <laughs> realizing like wait a minute this thing is weak but i care for it and i involuntarily <laughs> saved its life like what is this and then when she asked for his name is like oh, name oh i don't know what does that mean <laughs> it just felt very uh it just felt i think because before I, I think in a way ironically it humanizes them you know human-centric mentality since i am a human being yeah. so it's nice to see that all oh, right there's it he doesn't seem as i guess elusive and one note anymore yeah i mean that's how he's it feels like he's starting to flesh out his own personality which i find really interesting so like like this is his redemption arc in a way yeah basically murder a lot of people but (laughs) yeah i mean i'm not saying he's like gonna be like a good guy but i love i like a good anti-villain and i feel like this is he's rounding out to that yeah, I'd say the key verb here is like humanizing because yeah. redemption is too strong a word, but he is becoming less alien and more human. And I think it's interesting because they talk about the idea of names here. And we've previously talked about names as a way for someone to individuate, like Lael renaming themselves that from Hagia was like them expressing who they were. And I think this is another instance of one of the ants pondering who they are instead of just like taking the idea of their kingship is their entire identity. And I think this is 
really interesting because this is a common dynamic you see in other things of the idea of you're only really able to individuate in relation to other people and like there is a strong dipole in Kamugi here. I think also one thing I was a little bit confused about I thought he was given a name by the queen. Yes, but it was when he was long gone. Oh. Yeah, he was like, smell you later. <laughs> like walked out and then and then she's like, Tell my son his name is Meruem. Oh, oh. <laughs> so <laughs> he never knew the name? No. Yeah. Everyone hey, Megan, Megan, remember revealing the name is a big plot point later. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, I guess to kind of circle back, pretend that I found it interesting that he was so, like, I guess, shocked and, like, off-put by, like, what the fuck is my name and stuff like that. Because, like, let's say Leo is a great example. He had the confidence or he had, like, some kind of self-assurance to know, like, yeah, this is my new name, bruh. It's Leo, whatever. (laughs) But, um, yeah, in... Um, another thing that kind of like stood out is um, Charlapoo. Um, he is living vicariously through the king way too much. Like he needs to, like all the guards are obviously there to, you know, ensure that you know the king that the king survives and thrives and like that the. I'm sorry, I forgot the word, you know, the thing that's about to happen with the humans again. Like, oh, the uh, selection. selection. The selection happens. But, like, they all have their role and duties, but I think Chalapoof just is, like, he's, like, way invested. He seems way more invested than the other two, just from an outward appearance. He seems like he has, like, a like a like a crush like a like a longing for the king. I don't know if that's accurate, but, like, it really feels like he's more attached to the king I- as a person than as a or like as a being versus like as a ruler or is that intertwined that's like the same it it might be intertwined i also think it's less i think each of them expresses that insofar as they can because i think all of them have like a biological psychologically totalizing need to protect the king but because the personality and mind of them is so different it results in different relations to the king because you know pito is like this cat who wants to protect it in the way like an animal can while like yupi is basically a robot like he is like you know i mean he he's he's like a magical beat like i think later it's revealed this isn't a huge spoiler it's just kind of an incidental detail they're like there is no human to him he is just made from magical beasts so like he's just like a completely alien creature while like you know pito is at least like a cat and Poof is basically like, hey, what if you just had a human? So he's fawning over the king in the way a human who adores someone does. Yes. And one thing that also that I found really interesting was his point um, of sparing Kamugi because he didn't want to basically martyrize her in the king's eyes. So it's already acknowledging that it's contradictory because he thinks, oh, she's worthless. She's like a bug. But in a way he inadvertently acknowledged that the king already respects her and he doesn't want to further cement that by killing her so it's interesting that a lot of the ants with their superiority complex at least for these two already acknowledge kamugi being someone 
worthy respect whether they feel it themselves or they know that someone else feels it towards her Mm -hmm. which is more you could say about her actual family from what she's already admitted about them which is very sad (laughs) to be fair they're probably constantly on the brink of starving so they probably don't have enough time to think about ideas of respect that is they could treat her better for sure but they can't like (laughs) philosophize about it right (laughs) so one thing about kamugi um I know, like, the Nen Glow thing, because I, when I watched, this is the second time I'm watching this episode, is it really Nen, or is this Yeah, gonna... in the manga, it's said directly. I forgot that is, really? like, a big difference. Yeah, okay. in the anime, they're like, she's glowing, which, you know, you can take as, like, oh, there's a tiny she's glisten like of sweat for like... her. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah, in the manga, early. it's straight up, like, Meruem just says Nen. Wow. Okay. That explains a lot because I know the first time I was like, I don't know. I think it's like, oh, I I thought it was just like symbolic, you know, but then that's kind of weird considering in terms of visual imagery, they've always used kind of some kind of halo effect to show people with men and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah I think. The big difference being when people learn it for combat's sake, they, like, open up all their, like, uh, pores. While I think people who learn it, quote-unquote, naturally are just kind of, like, leaking out something. Mm -hmm. And, like, so that's why for her it looks as though dew is forming on her because it's as if, like, you know, the energy of this thing that's coursing through her is, like, condensing on her. That makes sense. I I would be curious to look back at uh, the Forger uh, in, you know, York New and see if his Nen looked different than normal combat Nen. Mm -hmm. His name escapes me right now. So there's actually like a little bit of detail in this episode that I think kind of fades into the background because it feels so unimportant and kind of in the grand scheme of things is. But there's this discussion between like Knuckle and the rest of the group about how they're going to invade and they... Tell this whole thing about how they're going to have like seven of them enter using, you know, Nov's Nen mansion, and then the chairman's going to attack from outside of the range. And um, it's interesting, and it does set up stuff that will happen later. Like, it does give you knowledge of that, but it's like the least interesting stuff about the episode. But one thing that I think is interesting about it in relation to something that Komugi herself says that I never noticed until this viewing was they, like, I think... At some point, Nov says something to the effect of, like, I'll never take a risk again. And there's a shot where Komugi says, sometimes you must accept risk and, like, you know, as a precondition of victory. Mm. And I think it's kind of like an interesting contrast of, like, this blind girl who came from nothing and, like, in many ways is nothing, Mm -hmm. is, like, the most brave and the greatest uh, in, like, her particular field. And I think the episode does a lot with the theme of, like, particularity of talent as described like the idea that the king could respect her on this one thing and whether or not that makes someone worthy of surviving even though it's something wholly unrelated survival is interesting right for sure because especially when you consider survival of the fittest and in terms of who in a society usually who tends to be worthy of living it's usually either the very rich or the very strong and she displays a strength that is not like even intellectual. It's like solely related to, I guess, intellectual in terms of like Gungi and stuff like that. And she would not be someone who would survive in any other type of like s- 
selection or the blip, whatever. So <laughs> okay, the blip was by chance though, so who knows? Maybe she could have. I mean, she wouldn't be one of the Mar- original Marvel cast. That's that's what I um yeah, but yeah, I think you're I think you make an interesting point where you see this like and I think that like Tagashi does a great job with her characterization and her um her looks like this really bumbly snotty cute innocent looking girl is the bravest of them all in terms of like she is always facing the king head on in Gungi in relation to Gungi but she is the only one that really talks to him directly and asks him questions versus like everyone else all the Khmer and guards are like in fear they try not to like toe the line in terms of like what to say to him and whatnot so and i'm sure it's the same like any human especially the hunters they're just going to be like paralyzed in fear if they were to see him so yeah she she now that i think about it she was never scared and they always play it off like oh it's because she's blind so she can't see how bad it is but like has nothing to do with how blind she is like i think that's like the (laughs) what's that called like the it's not easter egg the red herring kind of mm-hmm. she's like yeah. oh she she can't see it's it's really it has nothing to do she's like she just had a really shitty life in addition <laughs> to just her like constitution is it constitution i don't know like real high real she gets good charisma scores right. for someone so snotty <laughs> right because she seems meek in, yeah in a way where, in first. many ways it's like outward personality she seems like she would be weak but internally she is quite steadfast and steady yeah, but I, I'd also say that it's within, like, one particular dimension, and that is Gungi. But the mm-hmm. thing is, that is dimension she has made her life. Mm-hmm. And so it is simultaneously many different things in her life, but it's because she's extrapolated, like, one amazing talent into many other things. So um, sort of speaking about the idea of, like, adjusting space or, like, filling in space... So when they talk about Nav's power, they refer to it as a four-dimensional mansion. I forget if I've mentioned this before, but do you guys, does that sound familiar to you? Like to sing in Yu Hakusho? Oh, like the, what's that called? The mansion where it's, the, the Genkai um, fakes use case kidnapping and exactly. they go there. So, so that was uh... called Yojigen Mansion. That is also the Japanese name of like Nav's power in Yojigen Mansion. Oh, oh that's nice. Cool. So that was just like an awesome Easter egg that I only discovered on this viewing. Huh, that's neat. Yeah. They obviously look nothing alike. I just think he likes the phrase. <laughs> I wonder what it Yoji. Oh, four dimensions. Yep. Um. So something that I was thinking of is. I wonder how much of to to take back to Komugi's like Nen Awakening. Uh, I had it slightly later in my notes for some reason, but um, I wonder how much of it was like her own thing, and also like the stimulation of being around the king, both intellectually and maybe physically around being being around someone who's basically a dynamo of Nen. And is it? Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was about to ask. Like, was it awakened at that moment, or was it one of those things like they just noticed it because of? how long they spent with her. I think it was awakened at that moment. 
because uh, Pito earlier in the episode says something to the effect of like, oh, the king will catch up to her soon. But then later is like, oh, now that she's awakened, like they'll continue both improving at like the same rate. So he'll not catch up or like it will be harder for him to catch up. So I think the idea is that that was a real inflection point. Not to mention, I have the feeling the king's senses are so finely tuned that he would have noticed had it been there in the first place. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. fair. And um, I kind of ask if this was like some level of like cast off Nen from him in addition to her own development, because like one, it would kind of further the thesis of like, hey, people improving together and like individuating only in relation to each other. But also I'm building up a theory that, well, so I'm 99% sure that there's a lot of influence of the Nausicaa manga on the Chimera Ant saga. And this is maybe a partial reference to that. This one is a, this one I'm giving like a 30% chance, but my theory about it being heavily influenced by the Nausicaa manga is, is a much higher chance. And we'll talk about it later. Um, but I'd be curious if any uh, listeners who have ever read that would write in because uh, I don't want to spoil it too hard right now. Uh, have, have any of you read it or? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I think you Yo. you definitely recommended reading the manga. It's so good. Over it's the, over just, the anime. The anime is great. I like the anime. Oh, I love I love the movie, but it is like not the same story. Like the manga oh, really? is like basically just a long epic, while the anime is like one like eighth of Paragraph the story. Paragraph of it. Okay, so you yeah. get like a snippet of the world that like translated the best to anime versus like well it's like it's, when they did Dune. he wasn't he wasn't done with it he wasn't <laughs> oh. done with the manga and he's just like uh here's what i have so far oh it's like <laughs> full metal alchemist then <laughs> yeah but like imagine if you're only one eighth of the way into the full metal alchemist manga and just like extrapolated oh gosh oh that's what they did with blue exorcist <laughs> i've actually oh, yeah. never read or watched that so is it really that uh that much of a divergence they got a full season in before they had to divert like the next or two seasons it was yeah. like a season and then the next season was a complete diversion and you had to when they redid it they went back to like the middle of the second season be like all right start from here now <laughs> ignore the Oof. last half of the thing you saw um so there's that but that's honestly i think that's one of the few ghibli things that are based off of japanese works right other than like princess kaguya um because a lot of it's like Western novels, like Tales um, of the Earth I mean, Sea, there's Mononoke, Ariadne, Ariadne, Ariadne. There's a plain there's one, okay. Ghibli, I guess, and Spirited there's, Away. There's the one with alluded to World War II and planes. I forgot. Okay, that okay, so. that actually makes sense. So it's either it's Japanese or it's like British. Is Tales of the Earth Sea British? Uh, no, uh, Earth Sea is American. Oh, it's American. Yeah, yeah. So. Right? Yeah, it's Ursula yes. Le Guin who's like one of my favorite authors. It is a really unfaithful. I think the <laughs> I think Ursula Le Guin even said something to the effect of like, "Hey, delightful movie. It's not my book." <laughs> right. I think they changed a lot of things. A lot of one of her biggest, and also they whitewashed a certain amount of characters too, because like they're described in one main character in the book is described as like having brown skin and white hair, and they cast like a blonde guy. Uh, um yeah. wait so in the in the movie version he looks like he... somewhere between asian and white but in the books he's definitely supposed to be native american yeah i'm thinking the tv show you might be thinking of the live action TV which show? was made by sci-fi channel yeah wait what yeah, yeah so sci-fi <laughs> channel also made a version of wizard of earthsea but they did they did books one and two 
Meanwhile, Ghibli did book three, and they were not related projects. They just happened to select them that way. So if I watch the bad ver- TV version, American no, TV version, and don't then watch, watch Ghibli, don't. <laughs> what I, I, would, I would just recommend sense. reading the books. They're <laughs> yeah, pretty the good. The books are so good. <laughs> They're okay. really good. All her books are very interesting. Very, I love her take on sci-fi. It's very human. It's very Ooh. not humanistic. I would say it's just I don't know. It's just so well done. It's a very her world building is really amazing. Have you read a uh, Left Hand of Darkness? I want to say yes, like a very long time ago. It's a I it's re- a great book. I bring it up specifically because um, so she is the daughter of a famous anthropologist and like a lot of her work borders on anthropology and ancient history. But Left Hand of Darkness is about people who go to a planet where like gender doesn't really exist or like everyone is like one gender except when it comes to like mating, at which point they sex differentiate briefly and then return. But I yeah. read that one. That's a good one. But yeah, anyways. Anyways. <laughs> To bring to bring back to uh, the series, so we brought up the idea of like people being good in a single field. Um, you know, Merwim actually voices this to his underlings when he asks like his own name, um, because he's kind of like worried about like, oh yeah, who am I? Like, what what am I? Like, what does it mean to be a king? And then he says, perhaps the child I killed possessed the ability to surpass me in a particular field, and like so he's having this like crisis of confidence about like what it means that like individuals could be better than him at something. And um, have you guys watched Enter the Dragon? This will be a very short uh, detour. Enter the Dragon, like the Kung Fu. The Bruce Lee movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a, so that movie's not too philosophically deep, especially if you already watch a lot of martial arts movies because it treads a lot of similar ground. Slash a lot of those movies took from him because it's older. But the reason I bring it up is there's a line that's said in it that I, when I hear people make pseudo-fascist talking points this is the one formulation of it where I'm like, okay, I see why you think that's a good core of an idea, but it's like still abhorrent. But he says, how many beautiful things have died from the world for lack of the, uh, for lack of the strength to live. And I think this is like sort of the perfect echo of that, of just the idea of like what beautiful and transcendent things have died from this earth because they just didn't have the power to do more. Mm. Also watch Under the Dragon. <laughs> um, so what did you guys think of Pito's reaction once, you know, so like the king's like, oh my God, how could I have killed this kid? And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to fucking kill another kid. And then Poof <laughs> is just like, yo, you know, I, I can't believe I almost lost faith in the king. Good thing he's back in the kid killing business. What's up? I, I think that sense, I was like, I, I think kind of going back to the discussion we had before about um, Poof's, idealization of the king it seems like he really really is trying invested in the king making sure he fulfills his duty so i i think kind of the opposite megan i feel like he's more tied to the king for his role and making sure that he fulfills our role because that's what he's supposed to do and that's okay. why he keeps on having this crisis of being like, he's getting too close to this girl. I should probably <laughs> kill her. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's having doubts. No, what's what is wrong with him? And oh, yeah. okay, he's fine. He he's he, so it's like he not looks, personal. It's it's business. It's not yeah, personal. I, I um, think it's pers. I think it's very personal in the sense mm. that I mean, I think there are people in their lives where they idealize like their boss or like a parent figure and it's like they're meant to be 
that. And if they deviate from that role, then there's something wrong with them. And that's, Mm. it breaks their perception of like how they view the world because their role model who they look up to is acting differently from what they perceive them to be. Yeah. And take it a step further. If they're, idolized role model or figure is wrong or not right that means they themselves aren't and Uh, um, yeah so yeah I think there's a lot of a mix of idolization projection and yeah so like Shia who's like no character development for you. <laughs> like, <laughs> you you're going to see this one note king who's going to rule the fucking world and help kill all these humans. That's it. And it's so, like Stan. It's like a, he's like a Stan. Yes. <laughs> like, he's, he's like a, a stan. K-pop Stan. He's a K-pop Stan. You know, you, you, you have this perception. You're living the boyfriend fantasy, girlfriend fantasy. If they start <laughs> dating... All bets are off. Why did I spend so much money on your albums? <laughs> I never like. I think that is like the most accurate portrayal of. of yeah, when Pooh finds out that the king isn't a virgin, he's gonna kill himself. He's gonna literally <laughs> murder everybody. Um, <laughs> that is weirdly yeah, uh, yeah. I th- I think you're right about the projection and the like. I I'd also put it this way. I think Poof is like a really interesting character on the idea of like individuation because he's clearly someone who has a strong will, but like identifies himself so much with this other person that he can't really individuate in the way other people can. Yeah, I completely agree. He's just like obviously they're all the guards are all there to they live for the king, but Shia Poof definitely doesn't have any sense of boundaries or (laughs) to like really know like i'm still my own thing so yeah he has no chill yeah no chill (laughs) i I think it's i think the others don't have boundaries either they just don't think the way humans do and so Mm -hmm. they're just like yeah i'll just continue to act as the arm of the king Rather than like actually like, oh, but sire, you know, like basically like the person who but sires the king and then gets executed. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they feel it's for their own good, like for the king's own good. Like, you know, it's he's like, um, I was going to say he's like a court vizier. Then I'm like, no, that's wrong because viziers often mislead. Well, yeah, he's maybe a court vizier, but he's a court vizier who actually likes the king and just kind of like has his quote unquote best, um, you know, like has what the king should have in mind, but is like mm-hmm. smothering and like over like again lack of boundaries and just like kind of tries to trick the king into doing what he thinks the king wants, which is not necessarily what the king wants. Yeah, for sure. So, um, speaking of like symbols and the like, what did you guys think of the uh, hawk attack? Because I think this kind of plays again into like the you know, what beautiful things died from the world for lack of the strength to live thing. But also, like, I think there's a bit more here, but I'm curious, like, your thoughts. Um, For me, like, it's, like, one, a humanizing realization for the king to realize that um, that you don't have to admire, like, physical strength. Like, and there's, like, validity in protecting something that is weaker than you he literally says she's so weak and like i forgot the exact words but he's like she can't just die like this and you should have told me so i could protect you and she's like i don't want to burden anyone so 
I think it's like it could also reveal like even though he doesn't say it, there is a bond between the two. Obviously, how can or not? They've been playing Goongi for like nearly <laughs> like days straight, but also because he was he actually respects her deep down and sees her as something that he, important. Um and yeah, I kind of go back to like what you're saying like he maybe he's finally having the realization that like weak things aren't something that just get beautiful things regardless if they're weak or not deserve to live i guess i don't know or like you, a weak thing is something that can be weak or i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> i think you got what i'm saying <laughs> yeah i'm not yeah. i'm not sure if he's like fully arrived there yet though because the last thing he says in the episode is it kind of cuts the credits is like what is this creature and what do i want to do with her that's true I think I'm jumping ahead because of the ship, so... <laughs> Megan just grimaced. <laughs> I mean, I don't actually ship it, ship it, but I, I, I get it, you know? <laughs> I ship it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I ship it with therapy. There, there, there needs to be a bit of therapy. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm not, I'm not going to elaborate on, like, where this ends up, but, like, it's something where there would need to be change. There are well, worse yeah. ships. That's all I'm just saying. <laughs> I, 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 this is I not unheard of. Yeah, I think it's one of those ships where it's not like meant to be a healthy, full-blown, realistic relationship. It is just the fact that these characters seem to have uh, a unique bond that you don't really see between any other characters except between them. So I thought that's where I would kind of categorize it. I'm um, so excited for you to see more. <laughs> I love me some great character dynamics. So I'm excited too. Yeah. So um, back to the Hawk attack. Uh, the thing that I thought was interesting is there's been one character in the show who's been symbolized by a Hawk before. And notice not a cult. There has been someone who's, you know, a cult. There's been someone who was like another sort of bird, but there's one character who is represented by like a hawk or eagle. It's Netero. And uh, I think the strong implication here is not that he sent this, like that he has yeah, not, he doesn't know this happened, <laughs> but Netero lives in the world of survival of the fittest. Like he created the hunter exam to kill people. Like Netero is obsessed with weeding out the weak. Like, among people who decide to join his ranks, like, he's not just doing that to, you know, like, the regular human populace, which is, you know, therefore more you can say about the Chimera Ants right now. But he is straight up, like, someone who has put people through life or death games, and mostly death in most cases games, or at least, like, severe injury. Uh, and, like, Komugi is someone who would be ejected from the world if she had, like, entered his, like, his selection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I think he definitely does physical strength strength over mental strength <laughs> mental fortitude i mean eventually but like i think on the surface i think I you're think, right if we, because they don't I do like the hunter games. exam you just need i think you need i think will matters more there mm -hmm. but like you can't be weak like you will is the most important but if you don't have a baseline level of like strength you're not making it uh but yeah that's uh kind of my thoughts on on that episode um I I love these episodes. I know a lot of people, not you guys, but a lot of people are not fans of this because they're like, it's just talking. And I'm like, this is the best part of Hunter Hunter. <laughs> this is the best part. Gon's not in it for a second. 
Yo, yeah. can't wait for you guys to read the manga. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, it's like it's great characterization. You're actually seeing more in depth into like the psyche of the the villains, I guess, especially so. And you know, it reveals a lot of like themes about you know the strength versus weakness and like what is human like humanity and all that kind of stuff so it's a good episode oh man i'm just so excited for how this sets up the idea of survival of the fittest is the value of things beyond strength and like what that means for humans and like the human group that we've been following and what it means for ants Mm -hmm. for sure but yeah, with uh, with that said, uh, you know what some uh, things close relatives of ants have? Stingers. HyperX has refined the lightweight Cloud Stinger headset and now proudly presents the evolved Cloud Stinger 2. It still keeps the same rotating ear cup, swivel to mute microphone, and comfort, but now adds two years of premium DTS headphones, which I think last time we determined was down to suck, uh, X activation, <laughs> get even better in-game audio. Are and these a number headphones of- sex workers? What is happening? <laughs> No, I just meant <laughs> just that they're no. down to be vacuum. Oh, yeah, fuck it. I don't know. <laughs> Get even better in-game audio and a number of other refinements for the low, low price of fifty dollars. Premium that's suck not, action. You know, honestly, that's not that bad nowadays. Like in this economy. Yeah, and esta <laughs> economia. Crazy. Like, Available like crazy. now at hyperx.com. HyperX, send us one, because we actually said something nice, please. Thank you. But yeah, uh, before we thank anyone else, let's thank the patrons who helped make this show possible. Megan, take it away. We got to thank Tim, Mia, Hanaro, Arthur, Volteri, Mickey, Alexander, and Lucas. Volteri, I'm so sorry. I may have messed up your name. Um, But thank you so much. You guys are the best. Uh, We really appreciate you. We couldn't do this without you all. Um, And now a word from our compatriots and benefactors. When it hasn't been your day, your week, your month, or even your year, we'll be there for you. I'm Ryan, the line is always a dot to me. And I'm Mark, how are you doing? And we are a podcast of two friends watching Friends. We live in every episode of the TV show Friends in all its glory, delving behind the scenes and discussing all our favourite moments. Join us as we get reacquainted with some old friends and hopefully make some new ones only on the HyperX Podcast Network. SequelCast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shergi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Episode 109, Taking Stock and Taking Action, a.k.a. Koshin Kaishi de Kodokaishi. Originally released in Japan on December 18th, 2013, the equivalent manga chapters are 258 through 260, which were released in Japan on January 30th, 2006. While Killua elaborates every possible variable in the invasion, a la Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, the crew begin to inspect the unexpected and calls up Kite, who spells out that Pito's N- Pito's N is only lowered when using Dr. Blythe and that the only one worth exposing the king over is the king himself. Since no one else can hurt the king, they correctly surmise he did it himself and begin to wonder what's really happening now, right before the sorting. 
In the palace, the royal guards decide that one of them must secretly guard the king the whole time, and Poof elects himself due to him being less distractible than Mito <laughs> and more subtle than Yopi. In Nob's room of the four dimensions, the assassination group discusses the amoeba-like shape of Pito's N and how Kite elected to be caught in order to test the opposition. Killed the curious, killed the curious the cat did. Kill is it? <laughs> is that Anyways, <laughs> killed the curious cat they did. Is this a reference to something? I wrote that one, and I was trying to make a play on curiosity killed the cat, but I'm like, the oh. cat did the killing, so I'm gonna fucking invert the sentence. <laughs> the curious the cat did the curious the cat did oh that makes more sense when you read it out instead of me being the cat the curious did perfect so killed the curious the cat did um the sorting begins and we get a tour of each character's varied and rich internal monologue and life as they variously contemplate revenge tactics new techniques survival and self-actualization the king begins to seriously question who he is and the hunters assemble for the final push um, I really want to see you better get ready after that, even though we're like almost at the end of our episode. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that's the the episode. I'm sorry I stumbled through that one. Um, but I love whenever characters go through like backstory. I'm like, that's a death flag. <laughs> like, <laughs> who's dying? <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it's, we learn this now. Yeah. Mid season. Mid season. Ah, uh, you're dead. Nah, you're dying. you're dying. So I, I just had a thought of a counterexample. You know how in a lot of continuities the Joker just makes up his backstory whenever he like tells someone. <laughs> like, yeah, I just nice. wish they would show an anime style hard childhood every time he fucking like told his yeah my dad used to fucking abuse me like story. <laughs> Shadow and it's just, puppet, like, like going. Yeah, it's just and then it just like goes back. It's like uh, yeah, I think you're lying again. He's like you got me. So let me tell you a different story. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you that's something um, maybe because they're both clown themed that Hisoka would do <laughs> oh yeah. yo we're gonna get into Hisoka's backstory one day there's an unofficial manga about it that I enjoy you mean unofficial oh. as in like by Togashi or unofficial just like a fan theory so it's unofficial but it's by Sweet Ishida who I forget what he made but he is a fairly famous mangaka and I think Togashi said he read it and enjoyed he didn't so, comment whether it was canonical. Oh, so it's like a fa it's a fan professional fan theory. Yeah, it's like a professional fan work. Oh, that's kind of fun. Um, we'll definitely get to it someday. Uh, but like, have you guys seen Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal? Mm -mm. Not even new. I'm assuming that's like that feels like a '60s movie that we've never all seen. No, no, no. It's a modern show. Like you know, oh. Nathan for you, it's the same guy. Okay, I think I've heard of it, but I never watched it. So it's a pretty funny show, but basically the guy gets people who have like an upcoming thing in their life that they want to practice for and then recreates the situation to like absurd detail and like <laughs> just kind of like gets them to like more confident about it. But sometimes he does it without telling them. And so <laughs> oh, like they think he, it's the real thing, but it's televised. No, he like hints, he like gets information to them without them realizing it. And like basically like, sub subtly hints for a couple weeks before meeting with them things that he's gonna do when he gets there and it's really weird wait yeah. is it like a reality tv show or it's a reality docuseries the reason oh. i bring it up is because 
Kula says something to the effect of when you think you know exactly where uh, where and when things will happen, you often find out that's not the case. And basically, that just sounds like the opening monologue for a couple episodes of that show where he's like, I've recreated the bar where you're going to tell your friend that you don't actually have a master's degree. And like, I've gotten an actor to play your friend. She stalked him for a while and, you know, like got his like mannerisms. And it's basically like Kilo being like, okay, so let's think about all the variables of how this attack's going to go down. Real life Killua, that's terrifying. Well, except imagine if real life Killua was like a nebbish, like socially awkward nerd. It's interesting. <laughs> um, So something I thought about do you guys remember when Nov was exposed to the aura that we think is Pito's? Mm-hmm. The structure of it doesn't look like the way they talk about Pito's N and also reminded me of like the same one that got, uh, that got um, Palm. And I'm now wondering if it's actually Poofs. Huh. Oh, Interesting. Because, like, I think at the time, Pito's N was down, so maybe it was just Poof's N. Hmm. But I'd have to, like, review the tape. I, someone, listener, write in and tell me I'm super fucking wrong. But, yeah, like, what did you guys think of this episode generally outside of Nathan Fielder and uh, fucking different colored N? That was a good episode. Um, I think one of the more character-driven ones, which I appreciated... It just feels like, I mean, they literally announced they're going to start the invasion, so it just feels like it's going to go from ten to a thousand or more from from now on. So I like that little break. Um, see, you know, one thing I noticed is like he aged so much; like he went from looking like he was in his late twenties to like gray, and I was like, oh man, I feel okay, like yeah. I don't think he looked like he was in his late twenties. I think right. he looked like. He was like one of those Japanese dudes who's like you know mid forties. Oh really? Uh, I also saw I got late twenties too. Honestly, not really. Okay, I maybe it's based on mannerisms. Like, well, yeah, but like it's like a dude who likes to cosplay. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a yeah. I'm I'm talking about like dude who's in his forties who like does a skincare routine. Okay, (laughs) okay, that's valid. Which I think Nov would. Yeah, yeah, but his hair is like completely white. So I was like, oh wow. Yeah, I hear they never draw people in their 40s. It's either they're really old or they're really young. Because, like, Morel looks like he's in his 40s, maybe 50s. <laughs> the dad rock, yeah. I guess it, I guess if I compare them side by side, I'm like, yeah, he's in his 40s. But if I saw Nob on his own, like, late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> maybe. maybe I thinking. think he just looks too austere. I, I don't know, but like I'm I'm also aware this is a industry where people who are you know like 33 are called Jisan and shit. So fuck it. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> God. Yeah, how old is speaking of how old is um Ging? Uh, I think Jing is 30. Let me let me think about this. I I used to know this off the top of my head. Uh, come back to me. Because my brain says he's older, but like he has a young son, like. The kid's twelve, and he seems like he'd be a I teen think he's dad. Thirty-six. He's, like, kind of or, okay. he's thirty-six, which would mean he was twenty-four when he had. To gone. be fair, that seems like a way too responsible age to have a child for Ging. Like, let me gang. let me check this, <laughs> you know but I'm mean? pretty you know sure I mean? he's like you know he's I mean? he's older than thirty-two. I think. Uh, okay. I mean, 
people of all dad vibes have had (laughs) children irresponsibly like for various (laughs) why it's considered irresponsible may vary but i think it happens all ages he's 32 Oh. For sure. Oh, he's third. Yeah. So he was 20. That makes sense. Like he just yeah. turned an adult when he had it. Because th- here's the thing with Ging. I think any age for Ging would be irresponsible to have a child because he just left his child at the front <laughs> door of his cousin and was like, here you go. Here's a kid. <laughs> I-, I forget if I'm confusing continuity, but I think she sued to get custody of him. But then <laughs> Jing, d- but then Jing didn't like debated he's like yeah i guess that makes sense actually so it still makes him a bad dad but it at least makes him better than like just dropping off the Wait, kid are you joking or is that like really a thing i think she, that's like, in the manga su- like straight oh, really? up it's just like oh yeah like she sued for custody because she knew it was reckless to be with you uh, to be with him but like he didn't contest it so like i think it's one of those things that makes it more interesting oh. because it's like you know, like he did want to keep going, but like until he didn't. So it's <laughs> he could so visit still just because he's not the soul. Yeah, he so he's visit. like not the worst, but he's like also still like yeah, yeah. I guess it does make sense that you would be a better mom than I would be a dad. Yeah, I'm gonna check that because I forget if that's manga canon or if that's like Hunter Hunter ninety nine like bullshit canon. It's just mm-hmm. like I like it's the only way to make him less more redeemable is by like giving him a I sued for this child backstory instead of a. Yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to take care of him. Not until he was strong enough to like come find me at twelve. <laughs> Go through a Pokemon journey in order to find his own dad. Oh. <laughs> the more I think about Ging, I know he's not even in this episode, but the more I think about him, the more I'm like, wow, this guy sucks. <laughs> As like a dad, I mean, like apparently he's a great dude, but like also, uh, I don't know. Uh. <laughs> His contributions to society outweigh the horribleness of that of he like like Jackie Chan. Like, uh, <laughs> okay, know. okay. So this is from a secondary source, okay. but it's saying that in the manga, when you know Gon and Kula visit Whale Island, the story is basically that Jin came back ten years, uh, you know, after leaving, asked them to take care of Gon for a little bit. Mito gets angry, tells him to never come back, and then got custody. So there's no mention of courts or a lawsuit, but does mention that like, yeah, she eventually got custody of him. Mm-hmm. So it's more like, yeah, like he probably did like leave him there for a while and then got a phone call. It was just like, if you're going to leave him here for a while, fuck it. I'm taking the kid. Uh, you're a shitty, you're going to be a shitty dad. And so he probably could have technically still like come back and gotten gone. So he didn't fully abandon Gon, but it's more like his hand was still forced, but it's still a shitty move. No, it's like part. he left his kid at the babysitter too long. Babysitter's like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I'm just going to keep him now. <laughs> Basically. And like, this is like some real life parallel shit where like yeah. lots of times people sure this happens. Yeah. like leave their kid with their like their mom because they're like, yeah, I'll be back. And then like, you know, they just never, they went out for they, milk and they never came back. Yeah. yeah. Who like don't even like try to like who don't even like, quote unquote, try to abandon the kid, but end up doing it by virtue of just like not really Trying. caring to actually yeah. be the one to raise their kid. How the fuck did we get on this subject? I don't oh, remember. yeah. Um, I guess, like, going back to the episode. <laughs> uh, so I think it's like at the beginning when we were talking about Kilo elaborating every possibility. I feel like the even though he's, like, very much past... He says he's past, like, his old life as an assassin. One way or another, it's really defined who he is because he keeps on talking about um, how 
to expect the unexpected because it's likely something that you didn't didn't anticipate happening will happen and Ikago pointing out that contradiction and saying like Kiba's experience as assassin has pretty much shaped his opinion that it's a guarantee to happen and that's why they should plan for every possibility I thought that was really interesting because it just seems like Kiba's so young but he's lived already like five lives of like a full adult because he already has had this realization when most 12 year olds are like live in the moment and we just got to do something <laughs> so i thought that was pretty interesting yeah it, it is it, it's also interesting because they kind of i won't say contrast it but like later they kind of bring up like uh the idea of not of shoots Oh, no, no, sorry. Shoot actually thinks about Kila's um, unconfidence, but, you know, kind of realizes that he can't think too much about Kila's uh, unconfidence and how he's going to deal with it because he has to focus on himself or else he's not going to live. And so I think that's like an interesting way that like they seek to sort of transition between different characters, inner monologues in interesting ways and having them comment about each other is a really cool mm-hmm. way of kind of because like Shoot has also had major confidence issues. So it's kind of right. cool seeing that progression. Right. Yeah. It, cause I think it's, I love that scene in particular cause it's for, it shows that they are very much a team, but while they have their own individual worries and priorities that they do care about the well being of each other. Um, and like Gon's one stood out cause he's very much like first and foremost, he's just thinks about kite. And then Kiwa seems like more he's focused on Gone, which kind of ties out <laughs> for what's been happening for most of this arc. <laughs> yeah, there's something that Kiwa said that I'm wondering if it meant anything to you, because I'm like, I don't think this has in- been introduced. So it was interesting they name dropped it. But he basically says, and I'll support Gone using Godspeed. And then it's just like, <laughs> what is Godspeed? I-, I figured it's like he must have created some sort of new technique along the way um i can neither confirm nor deny hmm. interesting i mean i would figure he was seems like he's always trying to come up with something new in order to get the advantage so i wouldn't be surprised yeah definitely um so something i think we kind of papered over is like another scene that like not really super important to the overall plot but i think is interesting um, there's a part where Poof is using wing scales of his to drug humans to get them to comply during the sorting or the setup for the sorting. And uh, they mention, I think Nov or whoever is scouting it says uh, the hypnotic suggestion over top of the sound of tanks and repeated orders like is making everyone like, you know, march to their death. And um, honestly, this like conjured up images of like the Bataan death march to me. And I'm like wondering if there are like other famous death marches because like obviously Togashi is someone who doesn't mind talking about Japan's checkered past and like, you know, saying that it was wrong as evidenced by a lot of the stuff said during Chapter Black. But like, are there other famous death marches that have happened in a similar way? Because otherwise, that's all I can think of because similar things were done there minus the butterfly scales. I mean, the only one I can really think of is like the Trail of Tears in American history. So yes, but I don't think that was that's not the same. That just, wasn't the same because I don't think the hidden I don't think um the psychological aspect was purposefully employed. I just think people were just treated like animals and fucking killed. I like during it. 
I think that probably is still considered the same. I think the intent was the same. Oh, for sure. I just meant more like I think that people hadn't systematically studied like how to psychologically break people down mm-hmm. in the same way. So I think the violence and and the evil of it was equal, but I think the manner was different. Uh, oh, there was a lot. I googled. Me too. Death marches. There's a lot. There's okay. There's, so there's it could be any ton. number of death marches. Yeah. We did not do a research piece on death marches this week, no. so you don't have to worry about that, guys. Yeah. So there's the Bataan one, right? In 1942. Then there's the San Dakan death marches in 1945. Um, Nazi Germany did a lot of them. Um, the ba- after the battle in Stal- Stalingrad, they were meant to march mm. across the frozen steppe. These are just World War II examples. Um, they they also mentioned like the Trail of Cheers, um, the Cherokee Nation when the Cherokee Nation was forced to order. This is all on Wikipedia, so <laughs> just so you know, I'm not smart. Um, but there's like eight different versions. I think this was while it wasn't probably like researched in a lab, right? The amount of times America has made Native Americans march across the U.S. with different tribes makes it seem like they. You know what I mean? They basically researched this. You know, yeah, what I it's mean? possible they could have. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, if not researched it, they definitely would have been practiced hands at it, which is all sorts yeah. of fucked up. Yeah. Um, but in uh, eleven twenty seven, there was something in in China. It looks like mm-hmm. in the Jin Song Wars. There's just a lot. There's a lot. This is making me sad. Okay, hold on. I figured it was the Jin Dynasty the one that were Jurchens or my fuck it. I don't know. Anyways. Anyways. <laughs> Jer- no, Jurchen led. The Jurchen led Jin Dynasty. Oh my god, yes. Yeah. Of, <laughs> Chinese of- history points. <laughs> <laughs> Joe would be the one to know this off the top of his head. Like <laughs> I didn't know these words existed, I'll be really honest. Um, All right. Anyways. Um yeah, so they they also do like a little bit of stuff with uh, Morel where he's just like, oh yeah, I'm I'm mostly fucked up. I'm like at a 45 out of 100 right now, but I guess we got to keep going. Uh, Melioron is like practicing holding his breath, and he's like, I think I can do it for one minute, and yeah. um, which is simultaneously like incredibly overpowered, but at the same time, it's also like, oh shit, just one minute. Good luck. Um, one of the more interesting ones that happens though is Ikalgo says that he's going to be reborn conceptually in this case with uh protecting kula as his like new birthday okay. and uh it's really cute ikalgo is like my favorite character i always forget until he pops up in that like one episode a couple like a couple episodes back like maybe like 20 episodes back i'm like oh yeah ikalgo is the best he's my favorite yeah <laughs> yeah he's, it's growth, like, he grows like he literally he, he does it's like cool to see like because you know kula is all about making sure Gone survives and is kind of li- at this point that's his priority. So it's nice that like you know Kilua has a little has someone looking after him too. So it's like you know for it's once. So it's so mm-hmm. cute. And I think something that's interesting is I think Kilua's relationship to Ikalgo is a lot healthier than Gon's relationship to Kilua, and that's something we'll get into more later yeah. because like while we could talk about with examples that have occurred in the series to this point, it will get more stark as we go. Mm, Yeah. Um, But just keep that relationship and the comparison in mind as we go on. So the episode kind of ends with, you know, everyone exiting a portal to look over the palace while they wait 10 minutes before everything, before shit hits the fan completely. So 
How hype are you guys? Ooh, super hyped. I'm excited. It feels like it's been leading up to this moment for a long time, so I'm ready. Sarah, I want to hear what you predict is going to happen. Uh, I want to hear like lark. your pure. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I just want to see. Like, obviously, it's not like a. There's no points if you're right or wrong. But like, just out of curiosity, where do you think this story is going? As far well, as like what's going to happen here, I feel like the invasion, like all invasion, something's going to go wrong and some things are going to go right. Um, I don't know who exactly is going to succeed and who exactly is going to fail. Maybe Gon will run into some trouble because he's the main character and main Mm -hmm. characters always have the struggle like a little bit. (laughs) Um, The king, he's kind of being set up for some sort of like redemption arc. I don't don't think it means he's going to stop, but I feel like he's going to start doubting himself and Shiopoof is just going to try and be like no you can't because he's already showing those signs of being kind of hot and cold about the king's motivation and um, that kind of his rules his opinion of him I think Pito and Yopi seem like they're pretty steady going about following the king so I don't know if they're really going to change their minds um, but yeah I think it's going to definitely more go into the morally gray area like what's the right side um, when showing that maybe both are not quite white, but not quite wrong either. Like, what does it mean to be worthy of survival? That sort of deal. Um, I definitely so thought you said not quite white. And I wasn't taking that the <laughs> racial way, but like, you know, the theme song right now, the ending theme song is Hyori Itai, which means like two sides of a coin. Oh, <laughs> interesting. I mean, it definitely feels that way. Um, so I'm I'm personally excited for it. The only thing I've really heard about the rest of the arc from like things that I've like kind of read, but try not to get spoiled, is that is this where the narration's gonna come in? <laughs> the narrator. <laughs> I forget how much of JoJo have you watched, Sarah? I've watched. Oh, I'm in the middle of um, season three, so. I'm, by now, I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> or before, it's... I talked about like, I don't get why they keep on talking. I'm like, okay, I kind of need it. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand what's going on here. Yeah, this exactly. Was necessary. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad. I'm a little less, I'm a little less like, show not tell, bro. I'm like, you should tell me everything because I'm getting confused. <laughs> no, I understand. We can definitely do. We could definitely do a whole research piece on this, but the show not tell thing was actually, this is going to sound like I'm the most like crackpot leftist of all time, but it was actually made by a CIA funded like uh, American like fiction society to downplay communist realism, uh, to downplay socialist realism. Like it was a thing that was like basically added to the American artistic lexicon in order to like stop like socialist propaganda. You know, I think I actually read something related to that because it wasn't didn't mention that specifically but it did mention the more the more insidious like racial aspect behind it it was more with like vietnamese americans um trying to have their own literature and a lot of the context that comes from storytelling from other cultures as opposed to american cultures having that exposition is necessary but with like america trying to basically put 
Western white standards on literature being the only way to do things, um, that's one of the ways that they try to uphold it. So I never heard of the CIA one, though, but it checks out. (laughs) So looking it up, it's the Iowa Writers Workshop, which was a very influential mid-century American uh, writing group that like was really a big part of the show not tell movement and like they were directly cia funded because mm. <laughs> a lot of socialist like everything realism in the 50s with white men it's cia funded mostly. <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of socialist uh, realism of the time was specifically like tell you the motivations of these people and why they're doing things and what they care about and like who their mm-hmm. people are and they're like that's bad actually artistically <sighs> god damn that's- that's really interesting. God. Yeah. I like how there's a section here for tabletop role playing, but there's also a, a, a section here. Oh my God. What the fuck, body? Wait, are you looking up Iowa Writers Workshop or are you looking up no, CIA? I'm looking Show Not Tell, Show Don't Tell at Wikipedia. Oh. <laughs> um, there's a there's something about a critical commentary in 2017 Vietnamese American writer. Viet That's Conway. the one I read. Yeah. yeah. It's in the New York Times. It's an op ed in the New York Times. Um, um, it's. His position is was that such as was that such teaching is biased against immigrant writers who may describe emotions in ways readers from outside their culture might understand, rendering tell necessary. Um, so that's actually really interesting. So there's a lot of different reasons why show don't tell. It's interesting when like there's a lot of stuff we learned as kids. Like show mm-hmm. don't tell is one of those things that they told us in English class, right? Um, yeah, every creative writing class I yeah, took. Every before. creative writing class, yeah, everything. <laughs> Like that says, hey, these are the rules for being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that we, when you dissect like why they're a rule, it like it ends up kind of dark. Like that's not a place we would expect it to be, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just off the hand, but also we're not. None of us were really surprised <laughs> either. When, yeah, when Joe was like, oh, it was, uh, it was like racist propaganda. We're like, yeah, no, that's that sounds about right. Somehow checks out. <laughs> um, but sorry, I had like a twitch in my like back and it like spasmed. Oh. That's what the that was the weird yell. Okay, so looking into it further, it's more complicated. It looks like the CIA helped fund the Iowa Writers Workshop, which were huge proponents of that. But ironically, the original uh, show don't tell thing is from a uh, guy named Anton Chekhov, uh, who is a pre-Russian Revolution Russian author who wrote that. But the the fact that they still help popularize one of the most influential writing workshops in the country is maybe still a fucking problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think one, cause kind of going back to the episode and the scene where all the characters are thinking about their own thoughts about the invasion and their motivation towards it. One I really liked and appreciated was knuckle and realizing that, he has already like he, not humanized but really recognized that the ants are capable of having you know the same sort of like good hearts quote unquote or emotions that humans do but also recognizing that it is literally a fight against us versus them and despite the potential for goodness it's still a matter of survival and someone's gonna die and someone's gonna live sort of thing so setting up that whole theme i feel like for the arc already and yeah knuckles best boy (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't feel this is stated, but I feel that them being more human actually makes him more likely to be harsh on them. Oh, really? Oh, because it's he's like, an you animal had a protector. That's true. It's like he's like you had the potential to be good. Why aren't you being good? Sort of deal. Exactly. As opposed to animals, where he's like, "Oh, yo, buddy, you don't want to attack me," and like tries to turn them towards like another direction. <laughs> that makes sense. Like, I don't necessarily think that's supported by the text, but like, well, or at least this part and going forward, but like his previous actions would lead me to believe that he'd be harsh on humans. Yeah. And then I think the other one is like uh, moral. His thing is just, I'm tired. I'm too old <laughs> That's for his this whole shit. Monologue. I don't blame him, but <laughs> it just stuck out. It's like all relatable. <laughs> yeah. Um,. But yeah, I guess do you guys have any just like overall thoughts on this episode? Because I, I, I was honestly thinking about it and just realized I don't think there were any deaths in these two episodes. At least, I, I guess people uh, in the screen. sorting were fucking <laughs> murdered, but it was super off screen. That's a zero out of ten. I didn't get to see the carnage. <laughs> um, I, I, I liked it. I didn't like it as much as um, 108, but Same. I I think it was good to kind of see more of like the introspection from i guess the heroes versus the villains you know and um it was good to see kind of like how the selection was starting because it's like oh no the selection but you could actually physically see it and also like shia Poof has a, i don't know at first i'm like oh, what does he really do but then mm-hmm. he he does have a lot of like he does have a lot of power in terms of like what he can do and his involvement with the selection is a lot more vast than I thought it would be initially. So it, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm mostly in general agreement. I, I, I think like this is still a good episode, but like the previous one is like on stuff that I themes that I really care about and characters like I really like, but I, I do like that this is a calm before the storm episode. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like we're about to hit, the biggest bump everyone strap strap in hold on to your butts and uh you know you hear each of them praying inside their mind basically yeah (laughs) uh but yeah unless anyone else has further thoughts uh as there are no deaths i think we'll just go on to the uh outro if uh hannah you want to just take us out thank you so much for listening to the spirit hunters Please hit us up with questions, requests, or just to chat at our Facebook or Twitter at Spirit Hunter Pod. Heads up, check us out at patreon.com slash spirithunterpod and join our public Discord um, where we talk all things Hunter Hunter and Yohawk Show and more. Speaking of Discord, if you want to support us another way, you can help us by giving us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Um, each review gets us surfaced to tens or hundreds more people. Um, finally, today's intro and outro themes were made by Rifty Beat and Lightus Dalian, um, respectively. Check them out both on YouTube. Um, and finally, shout out to our editor, Tommy. Woo! Thanks to him, the rest of the crew can focus on doing research and talking all things Tagashi. See you on the other side. See ya.